Hello, welcome to Infinite Cast, your podcast. Yours and ours. Yours and ours. Department of Corrections. At least three of you. Dep- Department of Corrections. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at least three of you got in touch with me to uh, let me know that I mixed up Jeffrey Goldberg and Jonah Goldberg on uh, last week's episode. I'm very sorry for the error, but also uh, wildly impressed that enough people, A, enough people listen to this, that <laughs> B, enough of, you, uh, enough of you would offhandedly realize the difference between uh, 90s journalism lore between, or 2000s journalism lore between Jeffrey Goldberg and Jonah Goldberg and C, that enough of those people would be, uh, you know... It, not in sense, but motivated enough to actually DM me about the difference between them. Hey, if they're listening to the podcast, I feel like that goes goes to say. Yes, it's na- it's a natural progression, rather. Yes, so I'm very sorry for the for the error. Uh, I said Jeffrey Goldberg when I meant Jonah Goldberg, whose uh, mom was instrumental in uh, orchestrating Linda Trip to come forward with or <laughs> to coerce Monica Lewinsky into uh, ratting on her uh, sexual affair with uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, Department of Reminders of Things. I had someone slide into my DMs to say that Emil Minty, who I was commenting on last episode because he uh, he's on restriction for stealing an undergarment out of um, oh, yes. the, the trash, the Irish luggage that's currently on the porch waiting to boot someone out. Uh, Emil Minty is also yours truly from the early part of the book who avoids the laced heroine that kills Bobby C. He's now hiding out at Ennett and presumably stealing women's clothes to secretly cross-dress like he did when he was on the streets. Ah. More gender. This More. whole thing smacks of gender. The whole thing smacks of gender. Yeah. Um, but th- thank you for that. Uh, I don't know if you know, but this book is very long and there's a lot of and stuff And we've, re- we've been reading it for over two years. Yes. Uh, yes, over two years. Wow. Wow. Well, what a let's long, keep strange reading. journey it's been. Let's not stop now. <laughs> wonder, wonder if we got to like page like nine, 930 and then we were like, eh, we're done with this I project. was I was talking last night. We were talking about Harry Potter and uh, I read the first six books and then I just never, <laughs> between the sixth and the seventh, I believe I like turned 18 and, and like, like smoked yeah. pot <laughs> and I was like, I think I'm okay. I think I'm good. Uh, I'm sure it's gonna work out in the end for Harry. <laughs> we we're in a uh, uh, we're in our our Radcliffe era. I think it was from wa- watching the Weird Al movie. Yeah. We were just like, you know who rocks Daniel Radcliffe? He's great. Uh, always lo- happy to see him. Always happy. Oh, between seeing the Weird Al movie and throwing on one of our favorite uh, duologies, the Now You See Me movies. Yes. Uh, in the second one, in which he plays a, a weird little weird gremlin. Little guy. Uh, okay, Daniel Radcliffe. We were just talking about how how much we appreciate how he kept it together as like a normal, you know, plausible leading leading boy for the entirety of the Harry Potter movies, wrapped those movies, went away for about 18 months and then came back just playing like weird, weird little gremlins. Yeah. Well, you know what? I forgot because I was getting back into his biographies and uh he when he was like barely 18 was in equus the play where he gets nude with a horse and i think that honestly that completely changed the trajectory of his career is that he was he literally put it all out there not not everyone would do something like that and unfortunately if you're a girl you can't do something like that or you'll get treated a completely different way yes Uh, but he was brave for getting naked on stage um brave for getting nude with the horse so uh then also just thinking about a good Radcliffe performances we threw on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which I think is my favorite of those movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know it's lame to like Harry Potter, but you, the 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 Harry Potter movies are are very competently done. It it is a kind of a miracle that they they got all eight of those movies out. Yeah, uh, in the time that they did. Yeah, um, and just thinking how funny it is that in the the Harry Potter universe and lore, extended lore, there is a wizarding school for England, Hogwarts, for, for the British Isles. Uh, I assume that they let Irish people into Hogwarts, but, yeah. you know, it's not proven. I don't think that there are any demonstrably Irish people in uh, in Hogwarts. Not with speaking roles. Um, 
there's a Harry, there's a wizarding school for France that is all beautiful women. Yeah, right. <laughs> do, it's do illegal th- to it's uh, somehow illegal to be a male uh, wizard in in France. in France. Do you think that all those women uh the in the French um wizarding school uh smoke magical cigarettes? Yeah, of course. Uh there's a wizarding school for Bulgaria or just sort of like eastern general eastern Europe, central Europe. Uh, though Victor Crumb is bu- explicitly Bulgarian. Yes, he plays for the Bulgarian national team. The Bulgarian national team. So they're the the in the movies we see the British Isles, France, Bulgaria, and then in the extended lore there is one his wizarding school for the entirety of India and China. Yeah, it's normal. <laughs> Just this colonial mindset. It's yeah, it's yeah. The the three hundred thousand people that live in Bulgaria get one wizarding school, and the two billion people that live in India and China get one. What wizarding is school. what is the wizarding relationship to colonialism? Let's <laughs> let's read let's read the book that the podcast. Okay, is about. great. I'm but sorry. yes, no, don't be sorry. It's what it's what's interesting. It's what we're here. Right yeah, <laughs> it's what we're here for. It's a book. It's it's a book. You know. Yeah, it is a book. We can't argue that it is in fact a book. Really, seven of them. Yes. Uh, who whose length might uh d- does eclipse uh, infinite jest when put all together? Yes, but I think it, it's like three Harry Potter books for one infinite jest. <laughs> yes, they got pretty long. It was pretty crazy. Well, I think the last one's like eight hundred pages. Or yeah, something. yeah. All right. Well, let's go back to let's go back to the hospital. Back to the mind. hospital. Yes. Yeah. Sometime later at night, backlit by the light of the hall, is the figure of Resident Jeffrey Day sitting where Thrust had sat, but with the chair turned around the right way and with his legs primly crossed. Eating a cream cheese brownie, he reports they're passing out free to people down at the nurse's station. That, that's the uh, Kelvin Thrust brownies. Yes, of course. yes. Day says Johnette F. is certainly no Don Gately in the culinary arena. <laughs> she seems to enjoy some sort of collusive kickback type relationship with the manufacturers of spam, Day says, is his theory. It might be a whole different night. The nighttime ceiling no longer bulges convexly with Gately's own shallow breaths, and the improved sounds he can now make have evolved from feline to more like bovine. But his right (laughs) side hurts so bad he can barely hear. It's gone from a fiery pain to cold, dead, deep, tight pain with a queer flavor of emotional loss to it. From (laughs) From deep inside, he can hear the pain laughing at the 90 milligrams of Toradol IM they've got in the IV drip. As with Yule, when Gately comes up out of sleep, there's no way to tell how long Day's been there or quite why. Day is plowing through a long story, it seems, about his relationship growing up with his younger brother. Gately has a hard time imagining... It's kind of cute that he's basically on, like, dream duty still, Mm -hmm. uh, even though he's, like, barely conscious. I I do also think that there's something funny about, like, you know, having all these people working programs, uh, addicts, visiting you in the hospital and how much it makes sense that it would trigger the the kind of behavior of being on the podium you know yeah yeah of like what else what do you do when you are captive audience when you have like a yeah a captive audience yep. and it's uh tell emotional stories about your past <laughs> yeah. and how you got this way <laughs> yeah Gately has a hard time imagining Day being blood-related to anybody. (laughs) Day says his brother was developmentally challenged in some way. He had enormous red, wet, loose lips and wore eyeglasses so thick his eyes had looked like an ant's eyes growing up. Part of his challenge was that Day's brother had had a crippling phobic fear of leaves, apparently, as in ordinary leaves from trees. Day's been sucker-punched by an emergent, sober memory of how he used to emotionally abuse his little brother simply by threatening to touch him with a leaf. Day has this way of holding his cheek and jaw when he talks, like cutout photos of the late Jay Benny. It's not at all evident why Day is choosing to share this stuff with a mute and feverishly semi-conscious Gately. It seems like Don G's gotten way more popular as somebody to talk to since he's become effectively paralyzed and mute. The ceiling's behaving itself, but in the room's gray, Gately could still make out a tallly, insubstantial, ghostish figure appearing and disappearing in the mist of his vision's periphery. There was some creepy relationship between the figure's postures and the passing nurse's noiseless glide. This figure pretty def- definitely seemed to prefer night to day, though by this point Gately could have well been asleep again as day began to describe different species of handheld leaves. <laughs> A recurring bad dream Gately's had ever since he gave up and came in and got straight consists simply of a tiny, acne-scarred oriental woman looking down at him. Nothing else happens, she's just looking down at Gately. 
Her acne scars aren't even all that bad. The thing is that she's tiny. She's one of those tiny little anonymous oriental women you see all over Metro Boston, always seeming to be carrying multiple shopping bags. But in the recurring dream, she's looking down at him. From his perspective, he's looking up and she's looking down, which means Gately in the dream is either A, lying down on his back, looking vulnerably up at her, or B, is himself even more incredibly tiny than the woman. Involved in the dream also, in a menacing way, somehow, is a dog standing rigidly in the distance past the oriental woman, motionless and rigid, in profile, standing there still and straight as a toy. The oriental woman has no particular expression and never says anything, though her face's scars have an elusive pattern to them that seems like it wants to mean something. When Gately opens his eyes again, Jeffrey Day is gone, and his hospital bed with its railings and IV bottles on stands has been moved way over so that it's right up next to the bed of whoever the person in the room's other bed is. So it's like Gately and this unknown patient are a sexless old couple sleeping together but in separate beds. And Meg Gately's mouth goes oval and his eyes bug out with horror and his effort at yelling hurts enough to wake him up and his eyelids shoot up and rattle like old window shades and his hospital bed's back where it's always been. And a nurse is giving the anonymous guy in the other bed some sort of late night type shot you could tell was narcotic. And the patient, who has a very deep voice, is crying. Then somewhere later in the couple of hours before midnight's parking switch symphony on Washington Street outside is an unpleasantly detailed dream where the ghostish figure that's been flickering in and out of sight around the room finally stays in one spot long enough for Gately to really to check him out. In the dream, it's the figure of a very tall, sunken-chested man in black frame glasses and a sweatshirt with old stained chinos, leaning back sort of casually, or else morosely slumped, resting its tailbone against the windowsill's ventilator's whispering grill, with its long arms hanging at its sides and its ankles casually crossed, so that Gately can even see the detail that the ghostly chinos aren't long enough for its height. They're the kind kids used to call high waters in Gately's childhood. A couple of Bimmy Gately's savager pals would corner some pencil-necked kid in those those type two short trousers on the playground and go like, yo, little brother, where's the fucking flood? <laughs> and then lay the kid out with a head slap or chest shove so the inevitable violin went skittering ass over tea kettle across the blacktop in its case. The creepy ghostish figure's arm sometimes like vanishes and then reappears at the bridge of its nose, pushing the glasses up in a weary, unconscious, morose gesture, just like those kids in the high water pants on the playground always did, in a weak, morose way that always made, somehow made Gately himself want to shove them savagely in the chest. Gately in the dream experienced a painful adrenal flash of remorse and entertained the possibility that the figure represented one of the North Shore violin-playing kids he'd never kept his savage pals from abusing, now come in an adult state when Gately was vulnerable and mute to exact some kind of payback. The ghostly figure shrugged its thin shoulders and said, But no, it was nothing of the sort. It was just a plain old wraith, one without any sort of grudge or agenda, just a generic garden-variety wraith. Gately sarcastically in the dream thought that, oh, well, then, if it was just a garden variety, Wraith is all. Jeez, what a fucking relief. The Wraith figure smiled apologetically and shrugged, shifting its tailbone on the whispering grill a bit. There was an odd quality to its movements in the dream. They were of regulation speed, the movements, but they seemed oddly segmented and deliberate, as if more effort than necessary were going into them somehow. Then Gately considered that who knows what was necessary or normal for a self-proclaimed generic wraith in a pain and fever dream. Then he considered that this was the only dream he could recall, where even in the dream he knew that it was a dream, much less lay there considering the fact that he was considering the upfront dream quality of the dream he was dreaming. <laughs> it quickly got so multi-leveled and confusing that his eyes rolled back in his head. The wraith made a weary, morose gesture as if not wanting to bother to get into any sort of confusing dream v. real controversies. The wraith said Gately might as well stop trying to figure it out and just capitalize on its presence, the wraith's presence in the room or dream, whatever, because Gately, if he'd bothered to notice and appreciate it, at least didn't have to speak out loud to be able to interface with the wraith figure. And also the wraith figure said it was, by the way, requiring incredible patience and fortitude for him, the wraith, to stay in one position long enough for Gately to really see him and interface with him. And the wraith was making no promises about how many more months he, the wraith, could keep it up, <laughs> since fortitude had never seemed uh, to, be, uh, to have been his long suit. Do we have an idea of what this actually is? We'll see. Okay. The um, information 
will be revealed as the as the, <laughs> as book, the book unfolds. Continues. <laughs> continues. Okay, okay, okay. No, no, no I know, I'm I'm sorry. I didn't mean to to scold you in that way. <laughs> no, it, it, we will find. It's a it's a valid question because uh, there would be a time where maybe you wouldn't find out. But I believe in this passage. We will. Okay, great. The city's aggregate nighttime lights lighten the sky through the room's window to the same dark rose shade you see when you close your eyes, adding to the dream of dream type ambiguity. Gately in the dream tried the test of pretending to lose consciousness so the wraith would go away, and then somewhere during the pretense lost consciousness and really did sleep for a bit in the dream because the tiny pocked oriental woman was back and looking <laughs> worthlessly down at him, plus the creepy rigid dog. And then the sedated patient in the next bed woke Gately back up in the original dream with some kind of narcotized gurgle or snore, and the so-called wraith figure was still there and visible, only it was now standing on top of the railing at the side of Gately's bed, looking down at him now from a towering railing plus original tallness height, having to exaggerate his shoulders' natural slump in order to clear the ceiling. Gately got a clear view of an impressive thatch of nostril hair looking up into the wraith's nostrils, and also a clear lateral look at the wraith's skinny ankles like ankle bones bulging in brown socks below the cuffs of the high-water chinos. As much as his shoulder, calf, toe, and whole right side were hurting, it occurred to Gately that you don't normally think of wraiths or ghostish phantasms as being tall or short or having bad posture or wearing certain colored socks, much (laughs) less having anything as specific as extrusive nostril hair. There was a degree of what? specificness about this figure in this dream that Gately found troubling, much less having the unpleasant old oriental woman dream inside this dream right here. He began to wish again that he could call out for assistance or to wake himself up, but now not even moos or mews would come. All he could seem to do was pant real hard, as if the air was like totally missing his vocal box, or like his vocal box was totally demapped from nerve damage in his shoulder, and now just sort of hung there all withered and dry like an old hornet nest while air rushed out Gately's throat all around it. His throat still didn't feel right. It was exactly the suffocated speechlessness in dreams, nightmares, Gately realized. This was both terrifying and reassuring somehow. Evidence for the dream element and so on and so forth. The wraith was looking down at him and nodding sympathetically. The wraith could empathize totally, it said. (laughs) <laughs> the wraith said even a garden variety wraith could move at the speed of uh, quanta and be anywhere, anytime, and hear in symphonic toto the thoughts of animate men, but it couldn't ordinarily affect anybody or anything solid, and it could never speak right to anybody. A wraith had no out loud voice of its own. It had to use somebody's like internal brain voice if it wanted to try to communicate with something, which was why thoughts and insights that were coming from some wraith always just sound like your own thoughts from inside your own head. Uh, if a wraith's trying to interface with you. The wraith says, by way of illustration, consider phenomena like intuition or inspiration or hunches. Or when someone says, for instance, a little voice inside was telling them such and such on an intuitive basis. Gately can now take no more than a third of a normal breath without wanting to throw up from the pain. The wraith was pushing his glasses up and saying, besides, it took incredible discipline and fortitude and patient effort to stay stock still in one place for long enough for an animate man actually to see and be in any way affected by a wraith. And very few wraiths had anything important enough to interface about to be willing to stand still for this kind of time, preferring ordinarily to whiz around at the invisible speed of quanta. The wraith says, it doesn't really matter whether Gately knows what the term quanta means. He says, wraiths by and large exist, putting his arms out slowly and making little quotation mark finger wiggles as he said exist in a totally different Heisenbergian dimension of rate change and time passage. As an example, he goes on, normal animate men's uh, actions and motions look to a wraith to be occurring at about the rate a clock's hour hand moves and are just about as interesting to look at. Gately was thinking, for fuck's sake, what was this? Now, even in unpleasant fever dreams, now somebody else is going to tell him their troubles now that Gately can't get away or dialogue (laughs) back with anything about his own experience. He normally couldn't ever get Yule or Day to sit down for any kind of real or honest mutual sharing. And now that he's totally mute and inert and passive, all of a sudden everybody seems to view him as a sympathetic ear or not even a sympathetic real ear, more like a wooden carving or statue of an ear, an empty confessional booth. Don G is huge, empty confessional booth. The wraith disappears and instantly reappears in a far corner of the room, waving high at him. 
It was slightly reminiscent of bewitched reruns from Gately's toddlerhood. <laughs> the wraith disappears again and again, just as uh, and again just as instantly reappears. Now holding one of Gately's Ennett House basement flea baggy staff bedrooms cut out and scotch tape celebrity photos. This one, an old one of U.S. head of state Johnny Gentle, famous crooner, on stage wearing velour, twirling a mic from back in the days before he went to a copper-colored toupee when he used a strigil instead of a UV flash booth and was just a Vegas crooner. Again... I, we haven't talked about Johnny Gentle for a long time. But yeah, it, what's, what's he up to? It's, it is remarkable how much the, the premonition of a future president of the United States lines up with what actually happens. An entertainer uh, uh, who is obsessed with, uh, with the copper, like a copper, a copper fake hair. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Yeah, it is. What, what, what an insight. Uh, and someone who, you know, kind of takes the, the path of empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say we're, we're, we're never, you know, the, uh, the uh, tiger King guy where he says, I'm never going to financially recover from this. <laughs> I feel like the United States is never going to emotionally recover from Donald Trump's president. Yes, exactly. Well, that's why uh, on that Chapo episode where somebody asks us the question, what's the funniest thing that ever happened? The answer has to be Donald Trump getting elected president. Yeah. It's, you know, it, there, there's something about that bit of this book that is like peering into the source code and, and, and you know, seeing how the algorithm is going to, to play out. Yeah. Yeah. Did, uh, did Foster Wallace ever watch The Matrix? He must have. He must have, yeah. right? Yeah. I bet he liked that movie. Let's ask him. Let's ask him. Uh, let me get out the Ouija board. Okay. <laughs> well, more on, um, more on, uh, uh, um, uh, what, what's the word when something is spooky, paranormal? More paranormal. Yeah, more paranormal stuff later, maybe. Okay, maybe we great. can discuss the problem that we had at Thanksgiving. Oh, uh, yes. Again, the wraith disappears and instantly reappears, holding a can of Coke with good old Coke's distinctive interwoven red and white French curls on it, but alien, unfamiliar, unfamiliar oriental type writing on it instead of the good old words Coca-Cola and Coke. The unfamiliar script on the Coke can is maybe the whole dream's worst moment. The wraith walked jerkily and over-deliberately across the floor and then up a wall, occasionally disappearing and then reappearing, sort of fluttering mistily, and ends up standing upside down on the hospital room's drop ceiling directly over Gately and holds one knee to its sunken chest and starts doing what Gately would know were pirouettes if he'd ever once been exposed to ballet, <laughs> pirouetting faster and faster, and then so fast the wraith's nothing but a long stalk of sweatshirt and Coke can-colored light that seems to extrude from the ceiling, and then in a moment that rivals the Coke can moment for unpleasantness, into Gately's personal mind, in Gately's own brain voice, but with roaring and unwilled force, comes the term pirouette in caps, which Gately, or which term Gately knows for a fact he doesn't have any idea what it means <laughs> and no reason to be thinking it with roaring force. So the sensation is not only creepy, but somehow violating, a sort of lexical rape. <laughs> Gately begins to consider this hopefully non-recurring dream even more unpleasant than the tiny pocked oriental woman dream overall. Other terms and words Gately knows he doesn't know from a divot in the sod now come crashing through his head with the same ghastly intrusive force, e.g., uh, Achiacatura and Alembic, Latrodectus Mactans. <coughs> Latrodectus Mactans. That's one of the uh, the production companies, right? That's right. And neutral density point, chiaroscuro and proprioception and testudo and annulate and bricolage and bricolage and catalept and gerrymander, and scopophilia, and laertes, and all of a sudden, it occurs to Gately the aforethought, extruding, strigil, and lexical themselves, and lordosis, and impost, and sinistral, and meniscus, and chronaxi, and poor yorick, and, poor yorick. and luculus, and cerise montclair, and then Desica neo real crane dolly, <laughs> and then circumambient found drama leverate mariage, uh, marriage, sorry. <laughs> mariage. Uh, and then more lexical terms and words, speeding up to chipmunkish, uh, and then heliated, and then all the way up to a sound like a mosquito on speed. Oh my God. Is, is he being visited by the ghost of, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, JOI? Yeah. 
and Gately tries to clutch both his temples with one hand and scream, but nothing comes out. When the Ray 3 appears, it's seated way up behind him, where Gately has to let his eyes roll way back in his head to see him, and it turns out Gately's heart is being medically monitored, and the Wraith is seating up, seated up on the heart monitor in a strange cross-legged posture, with his pant cuffs pulled up so high Gately could see the actual skinny, hairless, above-the-sock skin of the Wraith's ankles, glowing a bit in the spilled light of the trauma wing hall. The oriental can of Coke now rests on Gately's broad, flat forehead, it's cold and smells a little funny, like low tide, the can. Now footsteps and the sound of bubblegum in the hall. An orderly shines a flashlight in and plays it over Gately and the narcotized roommate in Enverons and makes marks on a clipboard while blowing a small orange bubble. It's not like the light passes through the wraith or anything dramatic. The wraith simply disappears the instant the light hits the heart monitor and reappears the instant it moves away. Gately's unpleasant dreams definitely don't normally include specific gum color and intense physical discomfort and invasions of lexical terms he doesn't know from Shinola. Gately begins to conclude it's not impossible that the garden variety wraith on the heart monitor, though not conventionally real, could be a sort of epiphany-ish visitation from Gately's personally confused understanding of God, a higher power or something. Maybe sort of like the legendary pulsing blue light that AA founder Bill W. historically saw during his last detox that turned out to be God telling him how to stay sober via starting AA and carrying the message. The Wraith smiles sadly and says something like, don't we both wish, young sir? <laughs> Gately's forehead wrinkling as his eyes keep rolling up makes the foreign can wobble coldly. Of course, there's also the possibility that the tall, slumped, extremely fast wraith might represent the sergeant-at-arms, the disease, exploiting the loose security of Gately's fever-addled mind, getting ready to fuck with his motives and persuade him to accept Demerol just once, just one last time, for the totally legitimate medical pain. Gately lets himself wonder what it would be like, able to quantum off any place instantly and stand on ceilings and probably burgle like no burglar would ever dream of, <laughs> but not be able to really affect anything or interface with every, anybody, having nobody know you're there, having people's normal rushed daily lives look like the movements of planets and suns, having to patiently sit very still in one place for a long time, even to have some poor addled son of a bitch even be willing to entertain your maybe being there. It'd be real free-seeming, but incredibly lonely, he imagines. Gately knows a thing or two about loneliness, he feels. <laughs> Does wraith mean like a ghost, as in dead? Is this a message from a higher power about sobriety and death? What would it be like to try to talk and have the person think it was just their own mind talking? Gately could maybe identify to an extent, he decides. This is the only time he's ever been struck dumb, except for a brief but nasty bout of pleuritic laryngitis he'd had when he was 24 and sleeping on the cold beach up in Gloucester. And he doesn't like it a bit, the being struck dumb. It's like some combination of invisibility and being buried alive in terms of the feeling. It's like being strangled somewhere deeper inside you than your neck. Gately imagines himself with a piratical hook, unable to speak on commitments because he can only gurgle and pant, doomed to an AA life, of ashtrays and urns. The wraith reaches down. I just, you see, you turn the page and it's another two full pages of a single paragraph. Hey, be happy that we're not uh, going to the end notes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, is there, There's a ghost in Hamlet, right? Yeah. He's visited by the ghost of his father at the of beginning? Of his father at the beginning being like... Or are there guards that are ghosted by the uh, ghosted Yeah, maybe by the it's visit. not <laughs> ghosted. Yeah, get ghosting that that's a thing. Uh go, ghosting is a misnomer. Mm. Ghosting is not someone all of a sudden not talking to you. Ghosting is, is being someone by someone the, f being visited by the specter of, of someone your, uh, yes. who wants to get involved. Yeah, who need who needs you to get involved with their their murder or something? Yes. Yeah. Uh this all this shit has made me want to read Hamlet. I I've had this desire to read Shakespeare for a while, but I I, I genuinely would I would love to do a group um like Zoom reading of Hamlet maybe with some uh fr friends of the pod or friends something. of the pod I think that could be really fun yeah I think that would be fun you know who would probably enjoy doing that Mike Cavalier yeah oh totally yes <laughs> um all right where all right. where am I the wraith reaches down and removes the can of un-American tonic from Gately's <laughs> forehead and assures Gately he can more than identify with an animate man's feelings of communicative impotence and mute strangulation. 
Gately's thoughts become agitated as he tries to yell mentally that he never said a fucking thing about impotence or impotence. He's got a way clearer and more direct view of the Wraith's extreme nostril hair situation than he'd prefer to. The Wraith hefts the can absently and says, Age 28 seems old enough for Gately to remember U.S. broadcast television's old network situation comedies of the BS 80s and 90s, probably. Gately has to smile at the Wraith's cluelessness. Gately's, after all, a fucking drug addict, and a drug addict's second most meaningful relationship is always with his domestic entertainment unit, TV slash VCR, or HDTP. A drug addict's maybe the only human species whose own personal vision has a vertical hold, for Christ's sake, he thinks. <laughs> and Gately, even in recovery, can still summon great verbatim chunks, not only of drug-addicted adolescences Seinfeld and Ren and Stimpy, and ooh is e when e's at ohm, and exposed <laughs> northerners, but also the syndicated bewit. Is that... Northern is Exposure? That, is that Northern Northern yeah. Exposure? Yeah. I, I don't know anything about that show except that it was a show in the BS. Kind uh, of a launching point for a lot of... Didn't it turn into... Didn't the Northern Exposure people end up doing um, that one season television show that everyone loved? Twin that was Peaks? set in, No, it was set in like 1980. Um and it was like Jason Siegel was in it. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks, yeah. Yes. Uh, Wasn't that the same people or no? I don't know. I don't remember. Cares. Who cares? Certainly no one this listening is, that's to That's one podcast. for television heads. Yeah. Uh, DM us about if you have hot takes about Northern Exposure. <laughs> uh, but also the syndicated Bewitched and Hazel and Ubiquitous Mash. Uh, he grew to monstrous childhood size in front of and especially the hometown ensemble casted Cheers, both the late network version with the stacked brunette and the syndicated older ones with the titless blonde, which <laughs> Gately even <laughs> God damn it, which Gately even after the switch over to interlace and HDTP dissemination felt like he had a special personal relationship with Cheers, not only because everybody on the show always had a cold foamer in hand, just like in real life, but because Gately's big childhood claim to recognition had been his eerie resemblance to the huge necklace simian browed accountant Nom. Nom? <laughs> Nom. Norm? Yeah, but it's spelled Nom, who more or less seemed to live at the bar and was unkind but not cruel and drank foamer after foamer without once hitting anybody's mom or pitching over sideways and passing out in vomit someone else had to clean up and who'd looked right down to the massive square head and Neanderthal brow and paddle-sized thumbs, eerily like the child D.W. Bim Gately, hulking and necklace and shy, riding his broom handle, Osis of the liver. Do you, remember, do you remember that joke from probably six months ago at this point? No. Cirrhosis of the liver. He thought cirrhosis of the liver was a, a knight called Osis Of the liver. Of the liver and would um, uh, ride around on a, on a fake horse. And the wraith on the heart monitor looks pensively down at Gately from upside down and asks, does Gately remember the myriad thespian extras on, for example, his beloved Cheers? Not the center stage Sam and Carla and Nam, but the nameless patrons always at tables, filling out the bar's crowd, concessions to realism, always relegated to back and foreground, and always having utterly silent conversations. Their faces would animate and mouths move realistically, but without sound. Only the name stars at the bar itself could audibleize. I, I have from the few episodes of Cheers that I've uh, watched that the, whenever it's like they cut to a, like a Friday or Saturday night and there are like a bunch of other people in Cheers. Mm -hmm. I'm always like, why, why are you doing this? Just have the core group there. It's it's fine. It's it's a uh, I like always sunny basically solves that problem by being like this bar sucks and no one goes here but us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always it's, sunny. Is just cheers without uh, the concessions to uh, it's reality. It's reality, exactly. But yeah, I, I mean, I've not watched every episode of Cheers, but it's always I've I've whenever they have those nameless, uh, non-talking extras, yeah, mouth mouthing words but not speaking. Mm -hmm. I have also picked up and being like, isn't that weird? A little weird. Yeah. Uh, he, he's he's just like me for real, for real. Uh, the Wraith says these fractional actors, human scenery, could be seen but not heard in most pieces of filmed entertainment. And Gately remembers them, the extras in all public scenes, especially like bar and restaurant scenes, or rather remembers how he doesn't quite remember them, how it never struck his addled mind as, in fact, surreal that their mouths moved but nothing emerged. 
and what a miserable fucking bottom rung job that must be for an actor to be sort of human furniture. Figurants, the wraiths said they're called, these surreally mute background presences whose presence really revealed that the camera, like any eye, has a perceptual corner, a triage of who's important enough to be seen and heard versus just seen. A term from ballet originally, figurant. Oh, it's, I guess, figurant, (laughs) the wraith explains. (laughs) The wraith pushes his glasses up in the vaguely sniveling way of a kid that just got slapped around on the playground and says personally, he personally spent the vast bulk of his own former animate life as pretty much a figurant, furniture at the periphery of the very eyes closest to him, it turned out, and that it's one heck of a crummy way to try to live. Gately, whose increasing self-pity leaves little room or patience for anybody else's self-pity, tries to lift his left hand and wiggle his pinky to indicate the world's smallest viola playing the theme from The Sorrow and the Pity, but even moving his left arm makes him almost faint. And either the wraith is saying or Gately is realizing that you can't appreciate the dramatic pathos of a figurant until you realize how completely trapped and encaged he is in his mute peripheral status because like say for example if one of Cheers's bar's figurants suddenly decided he couldn't take it anymore and stood up and started shouting and gesturing around wildly in a bid for attention and non-peripheral status on the show Gately realizes all that would happen is that one of the audibilizing name stars of the show would bolt over from stage center and apply restraints or the Heineken maneuver or CPR. The Heineken maneuver. Figuring the silent gesturing figurant was choking on a beer nut or something. And then that the whole rest of uh, that episode of Cheers would be about jokes about the name stars life-saving heroics or else his fuck up in applying the Heineken maneuver to somebody who wasn't <laughs> choking on a nut. No way for a figurant to win. No possible voice or focus for the encaged figurant. Gately speculates briefly about the suicide statistics for bottom-rung actors. (laughs) The wraith disappears and then reappears in the chair by the bed's railing, leaning forward with its chin on its hands on the railing in what Gately is coming to regard as the classic tell-your-troubles-to-the-trauma-patient-that-can't-interrupt-or-get-away position. The Wraith says that he himself, the Wraith, when animate, had dabbled in filmed entertainments, as in making them, cartridges, for Gately's info to either believe or not, and but in the entertainments the Wraith himself made, he said he goddamn bloody well made sure that either the whole entertainment was silent, or else if it wasn't silent, that you could bloody well hear every single performer's voice, no matter how far out on the cinematographic or narrative periphery they were. And that it wasn't just the self-conscious overlapping dialogue of a poser like Schwoltz or Altman, i.e. it wasn't just the crafted (laughs) imitation of oral chaos. It was real life's real egalitarian babble of figurantless crowds, of the animate world's real agora, the babble, which takes us to endnote 342, or possibly capitalized babble, as in um, the tower. Back to the (laughs) The tower of. uh, Babble, tower of. uh, Back to the text. Babble of crowds every member of which was the central and articulate protagonist of his own entertainment. It occurs to Gately he's never had any sort of dream where somebody says anything like vast bulk, much less agora, which Gately interprets as a kind of expensive sweater. <laughs> what do you, how are we doing on time? Uh, we're probably getting pretty up there. Uh, thirty-eight minutes. How how much longer is this segment? It's it's it'll be longer than a segment, but maybe we'll go for another like ten, ten minutes. Yeah, just to see I how mean, far find something get. that. I mean, th- this is cer- certainly interesting. <laughs> uh, which was why the wraith is continuing the complete unfigurated egalitarian oral realism was why party line entertainment critics always complained that the wraith's entertainments public area scenes were always incredibly dull and self-conscious and irritating, that they could never hear the really meaningful central narrative conversations for all the unfiltered babble of the peripheral crowd, which they assumed the babble slash babble was some self-conscious viewer-hostile heavy art directorial pose instead of radical realism. The race grim smile almost disappears before it appears. Gately's slight, tight smile back is the way you can always tell he's not really listening. (laughs) He's remembering that he used to pretend to himself that the unviolent and sarcastic accountant Nam on Cheers was Gately's own organic father, straining to hold young Bimmy on his lap and letting him draw finger pictures in the condensation rings on the bar top. And when he was pissed off at Gately's mother being sarcastic and witty instead of getting her down and administrating horribly careful U.S. Navy brig-type beatings that hurt like hell but would never bruise or show. 
The can of foreign Coke has left a ring on his forehead that's colder than the feverish skin around it. And Gately tries to concentrate on the cold of the ring instead of the dead, cold, total ache on his whole right side, dextral, or the sober memory of his mother, Mrs. Gately's ex-significant other, the little-eyed former MP in khaki skivvies hunched drunk over his notebook's record of his Heinekens for the day, his tongue in the corner of his mouth, and his eyes scrunched as he tries to see a unitary enough notebook to write in, Gately's mother on the floor, trying to crawl off toward the lockable bathroom quietly enough so the MP wouldn't notice her again. The Wraith says, just to give Gately an idea, he, the Wraith, in order to appear as visible and interface with him, Gately, he, the Wraith, has been sitting, still as a root, in the chair by Gately's bedside for the Wraith equivalent of three weeks, which Gately can't even imagine. It occurs to Gately that none of the people that have dropped by to tell him their troubles has bothered to say how many days he's been in the trauma wing uh, now or what day it's going to be when the sun comes up. And so Gately has no idea how long he's gone now without an AA meeting. Gately wishes his sponsor, ferocious Francis G., would hobble by instead of Ennett's staff that wants to talk about prosthesis and residents <laughs> who come just to share remembered wreckage with somebody they don't even think can hear them, sort of the way a little kid confides to a dog. He doesn't let himself even contemplate why no finest or federally crew-cut guys have visited yet if he's been in here a while, if they've been all over the house like hamsters on wheat already, as Thrust had said. The seated shadow of somebody in a hat is still there, out there in the hall. Though if the whole interlude was a dream, it isn't and has never been there, Gately realize, realizes, squinting a little to try to make sure the shadow is the shadow of a hat and not a fire extinguisher box or the hall wall or something. The Wraith excuses himself and disappears, but then reappears two slow blinks later, back in the same position. That was worth an excuse me, Gately thinks at the, the Wraith dryly, almost laughing. The sheet of pain from the near laugh sends his eyes way back up in his head. The chassis of the heart monitor doesn't look broad enough to support even a Wraith's ass. <laughs> the heart monitor is the silent kind. It's got the moving white line with big speed bumps moving across it for Gately's pulse but it doesn't make the sterile beeping that old hospital drama monitors did. Patients in hospital dramas were frequently unconscious figurants, Gately reflects. Like Meredith Grey when she got COVID. Oh, yes. Uh, not that I've ever seen that. I'm just assuming. <laughs> we, we were told that uh, about uh, Meredith Grey's COVID arc. Yeah. The Wraith said he just paid a small quantumish call to the old spotless Brighton two-decker of one ferocious Francis Gehaney. And from the way the old crocodile's shaving and putting on a clean white t-shirt, the Wraith says he predicts FF will be visiting the trauma wing soon to offer Gately unconditional empathy and fellowship and acerbic crocodilian counsel. Unless this was just Gately himself thinking this up to keep a stiff upper attitude, Gately thinks. The Wraith pushes his glasses up sadly. You never think of a wraith looking sad or unsad, but this dream wraith displays the whole effective range. Gately can hear the horns and raised voices and U-turn squeals way down below on Wash that indicates it's around 0000H, the switching hour. He wonders what something as brief as a car horn honk sounds like to a figurant that has to sit still for three weeks to be seen. Wraith, not figurant, Gately means. He corrects himself. He's lying here, correcting his thoughts like he was talking. He wonders if his brain voice talks fast enough for the wraith not to have to, like, tap its foot and look at its watch between words. Are they words if they're only in your head, though? The wraith blows its nose in a hanky that's visibly seen better epochs and says he, the wraith, when alive in the world of animate men, had seen his own personal youngest offspring, a son, the one most like him, the one most marvelous and frightening to him, become a figurant toward the end. His end, not the son's end, the wraith clarifies. Maybe we'll stop there. Let's stop We're there. We're getting into a zone that was, would be better off to have its own discussion. All right, great. Woo! Uh, oh, boy! What? What's happening? What would you talk to a unconscious Don Gately about? Oh, you know me. I talk to my, I give encouraging words to my plants. I would be like, you can do it, man. Don't die. I'd probably, uh, you know, it, it, there is something compelling about talking to somebody unconscious where you can kind of unburden yourself. Say whatever you want. But I would probably end up talking about what that person meant to me, not mm -hmm. what <laughs> I I meant to that person. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, Don, I really appreciate all the work that you do around the house. And like, you know, <laughs> the fact that I am here means that things have not been going well. So it, it in a certain way, you know, you're you're taking care of me. 
And uh, now I am here to take care of you a little bit. They don't, uh, whoever's making J- Johnette doesn't put cornflakes in the meatloaf for texture. <laughs> uh, Don's cooking was remarked to be not good, but not you put good. a lot of care in yeah. it. Uh, I could tell that you tried. He, bo- he boiled pasta for an hour. <laughs> it's not good. It's definitely food. It might not even be food. You know, uh, whatchamacallit, um... Jeffrey Day saying that uh, Johnette is not afraid of spam. Uh-huh. I just saw via Twitter, you know, spam has a new holiday flavor called figgy pudding. There's a figgy pudding spam. It's like a Christmas spiced spam. And I have to say, I you, kind of want it. Spam's good. Spam is good. Uh, spam haters don't realize. Yes. I mean, I think it, it got a bad rap. And it, 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 I feel like it's better than it is intended to be. Yeah, the first time I had Spam, I was like, oh, it's like a nicely seasoned meat product. Yes, uh, it's great in soups and uh, like ramen type dishes. Spam, Spam Masubi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway, I, I w- would like to find the figgy pudding Spam. Um, they suggested a Dutch baby recipe that included it. So it's kind Ooh, of like sweet and savory. Interesting. Anyway, what's so there, happening? So there's a dang ghost in this. What is this? Beloved, there's a ghost. Let's let's try to synthesize here because we got some we got some shit. It's definitely it's JOI. Yes. Uh Don Don is in a state of unreality. Yes. Uh he, but, he is in the, the in between space where but, he is contact with other realms. Uh yes. He's in a, a unique a unique state that lets him be conversant with the Wraith. Yeah. Uh, even if he's getting sort of mo- literally mind fucked, mind freaked by um, <laughs> by JOI. Uh, if if JOI can fetch a ch- can of Chinese Coca Cola, yeah, wait, that can wait. leave literally physically, uh, you know, a ring of cold uh, feeling on his forehead. He could also do other things like maybe move the beds around in um, uh, orthostasis. Oh, interesting. Maybe he would put uh, two squeegees in a cross position uh, up on the wall, freaking everyone out. Maybe uh, the doll machine ends up in the girl's uh, dorm room or locker room and (laughs) scares them. Uh, You know, maybe uh, uh, orthostasis might be playing Hal and get some really, really lucky shots in with his... uh, tennis ball uh that he almost thinks uh are otherworldly in a way and all right so so there there is a ghost haunting the entire book there's a ghost haunting the entire book uh and he doesn't get to talk to anybody until uh dawn the, the real question is why? Why why not why now? Well, why the, Don? Well, that's the the most interesting thing, not the most interesting thing. The the thing that really sucks, sticks out to me is like what do you make of A the Chinese coke can and B the his his attire, sweats and a trench I th- coat? I'm guessing that's what he wore in his life that he was a tall skinny guy with terrible posture and no attitude toward fashion. Okay. I think he was. Just, I think he's dressed the way that he dressed in life. Okay, um, it, it seemed like a, a strange, uh, strange attire to me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, the it's kind of a surprising term. Like, I don't know. It, like anything, any any fiction that veers into the supernatural. Yeah. Um. You know, I'm I always appreciate it, but you know, I I need there to be rules and stuff. You know, we we watch. Well, there are rules. He's he's operating on the quantum level, right? Yes, I guess. That's so. what's interesting is that DFW Maybe. is coming up with like a perfectly like logical, uh, scientific excuse for the race to be there is that he's like a spirit on uh who's behaving quantumly. Maybe it's like Watchmen, uh, where when he microwaved himself, he like got turned into a Doctor Manhattan type uh figure. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, that exists, uh, yeah, on the quantum level, and yeah. is like reconstructing himself uh, atomically. Yeah, I'll bring this up because I believe someone messaged about it um, quite a while ago. Which the thing I'll bring back is that there was a um, mention at one point the uh, specific Quebecois region's tradition of drilling holes in coffins so that like the spirit could escape. Yes. And just thinking about that, uh, and you know why, why, why do spirits stick around? It's because there's unfinished, unfinished business, business, and because someone has let them out. And he was buried in in Quebec, uh, if if you do recall. 
Um, so perhaps there's been some mischief there. Yes. Um, well, there was also that passage about the uh, the guy's spirit launching itself back to Quebec. Yeah, uh, when he got, um, when, uh, whatchamacallit, got stabbed through the um, oh. the body with a broom. The, this is kind of a grim aside. Anti-Twat brother, yeah. Uh, but we do have to mes- uh, mention, because another like bizarre parallel to life. Yeah. The Club Q shooting... Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The guy, uh, the shooter, opened fire and then was attacked by a uh, honestly cool-seeming military vet. Ex, yeah. Ex-military. Who, ex-military uh, guy who owns a uh, brewery uh, in Colorado that sells branded drug rugs, <laughs> which I kind of <laughs> want to get to just support the guy. But he gets tackled by a vet and then a uh, woman... Uh, assists the attack on the gunman by stomping on his face with, with a, high, a heel. high heel. Yeah, a which I believe stil- a spike a stil- through yeah. the eye. Which I believe from which, the New York Times article I read, where he was recounting what happened. I believe he instructed her to do it. Yes, like he was basically like, "Hey, you!" Like he goes into like full like military yeah. combat mode, and he's yelling at people to do different things, including, was, "Hey, you stomp on his face with that spike. with your heel." Which, unfortunately, I did see the pictures of that man, and uh, still has he, both eyes. So he still has both eyes, and I certainly wish he didn't. And I honestly wish uh, he uh, the picture of him would have looked like the busted knuck uh, who, yes. who expired. Uh, it was still still pretty good job, all things considered. Yes, that scene of uh, people with without a gun overpowering yes. someone with a gun does eerily mirror the scene. Um, yes, with uh, with Don Spike heel through eye. Yeah, Spike heel through eye. Uh, yes, if only that it, that it happened. But anyway, yeah, just uh, Molly Molly flagged that as we were reading that very uh, horrifying story. Yeah, and being like. <laughs> remind you remind you of anything and i was like yes, yes yeah it does. uh do you do you believe in ghosts Rates? um that's a good question uh i don't know i believe in uh in forces yeah energy yeah that exists outside of human comprehension yeah I believe, I believe in ghosts. I believe in I believe in energies exerted through the like wills and so I believe in yeah. souls basically. I guess so. Um, yeah, it, but it, it's all but the, and I guess to go back to this, it's all in it's perception, right? Yeah, it's perception. So it's what's happening in your mind, which makes sense that the portrayal of the wraith in this is someone literally invading your own thoughts and yes. speaking in your own voice because. Unfortunately, it's the solipsistic view of existence. It's like you are the center of the universe, right? Yes. So everything has to pass through you. So that when you're thinking of, say, you know, someone who died and it, something reminds you of them, mm-hmm. that is technically them expressing themselves through your brain. Yes, it's true. Uh, nobody, uh, very unfortunately for everyone in the world, uh, everyone else only exists in their own consciousness. In your own consciousness. But that's why you have to, you know, be be happy that, you know, when someone, you don't have to be happy when someone dies, of course. <laughs> but uh, but you can take comfort in the fact that them living on in your memory is them living on. Isn't it kind of wild to think that everybody else has their own consciousness and they're the main character of it? I know. It's crazy. Uh, you, you Which again, like, let's, like fi- your- again, figurants. Every, you, yeah. you are the main character and everyone else is a figurant and it's whether or not you let the figurants talk. Yes. Same with uh, be Don being this receptive uh, corpse, basically for other people's mm-hmm. confessions. Uh, he's a figurant in everyone else's main character lives. Ah! Uh, if you think too hard about that, it does make it could drive you crazy. Yes. Because the, everyone else's wills and in, in, inflicting them on each other every day. Oh God. Oh God. There are too many. Who cares? Be- who will care about me? Oh, I'm the only one. Nobody cares about me. Oh, I guess I'll have to care about myself. I guess I'll have to care about myself. Ugh. And we're just like, we're, you know, we're watching this <laughs> tennis match and it's just like. Right. How does it all. Everybody uh, here, not just the main tennis players, but, you know, all the people in the stands, they all have their own own entire universe lives. inside them. Yes. And that's why we were talking last night a bit about um, when people sort of are not naughty on Twitter um, in, in one's mentions uh, 
that I think one of the one of the specific hells that we have right now is that people feel like figurines in their own lives. Yes. Because you see there's never been a wider rush of information coming and you see people being paid attention to for their thoughts and their feelings. And you want some of that. Yes. You want proof you're alive. Yes. So you reach out and you say, fuck you, asshole, or whatever. Or you say, um, actually, blah, blah, blah. Or I say, I really like this song. And someone comes in my mentions and they're like, yeah, what, about, what about this, this other song? <laughs> and I know it's, and I'm like, this is incredibly annoying, but you're just, you, you want proof you're alive by yes. people coming treating you not as a figurine but by as a main character so i have nothing but empathy for that but it is exhausting it's exha- life is exhausting it's exhausting that everybody else in the universe exists it is <laughs> but it's cool it is and cool. it and you uh i, I know don, don is having a hard time because he's in an incredible amount of pain but one of the coolest things that can happen is when you do let someone else's consciousness into your life and empathize and identify yes. uh, and all of the other AA things and, uh, you know, have a transcendent experience that you wouldn't when you're trapped in your own brain. This is why you read a book so you can go enter someone else's brain for a little while. Or you watch, dare I say, a movie or maybe a bit of television. I don't know. There, maybe you make some art and then someone else experiences the art that you make and then they can get into your brain for a second. Or they completely misinterpret it and write a horrible review. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, and then your Rotten Tomato score is like three. Oh uh, God! Imagine Joi's uh, letterboxed. <laughs> wow, honestly, that would be Somebody a great. Make a fake that job. would be a great um school assignment, like to interpret this as like write a letterbox review of one of um go through the filmography the, and write a and write a letterbox. Yeah. Uh, somebody should do that. How much? How much Infinite Jest fanfic is there? Uh, that's a good question. It's like an area that I've never um. Never I feel like the, the, the Infinite Jest fandom is is much more like on the level of like analysis and mapping. Here's the thing. There are a lot of Infinite Jest graphs. Who's gay? Who's gay and with who? Wait, <laughs> no, sorry. That's a that's the um that's a horrible over oversimplification of what No, there are a lot of Infinite Jest graphs. Yeah, you need to make sense. There's a lot yes. of confusing logic. Yeah. Um Yeah, I'm sure there must be some fan fiction out there. Uh, although that is that is a very funny. Th- I mean that that would be a uh, a real obsessive move is to actually try to make one of the uh, JOI uh, movies. Yeah, the 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 reveal that if there's more than you know just his main characters on screen that you hear everyone's <laughs> conversation. <laughs> that's so good uh, as a late a late reveal. Should we his- watch some Cheers? Yeah, I've wa- I, when I watched Cheers, I I liked it a lot. Yeah, it's good. There's a reason it's a classic. Yeah, because it also has some uh, things that I feel like they don't do as much anymore. Where there's like a smart person vying with like a, a uh, not smart person. Yeah, st- street smarts versus uh, book smarts. Uh, yes, I mean it. it that's bur- a that's a pretty common. Uh, it birthed the Fraser. I guess street smarts versus book smarts is also what happens on like uh, Thirty Rock and stuff. <laughs> a little bit. Uh yeah, Fra- Fraser. Yeah, people used to make more pretentious characters. Yeah, and now even pretension has died. Yes, <laughs> people are snobby about beer instead of wine. I mean, can you, you imagine? You get like it's all the characters on like even Seinfeld or Fra- or Fraser. You can easily describe. And now what are our our big sitcoms? It's like wonder if all the characters are just like normal people. <laughs> Relatable. Relatable. Yeah. It's like no, show me some weirdos. Yeah, show me some freaks, man. Yeah, show me some freaks. Oh, I mean, what's a si- what is a sitcom right now that is popular? Yeah, uh, Ab- I guess that Abbott, Abbott Ele- Elementary, but or is- J- Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso. Well, isn't the thing yeah, about that, those shows is that they that make you feel good and everyone's like nice normal and, and nice. funny? Yeah. <laughs> show me some fucking neurotic assholes. I mean, that's why. Show me the freaks. Show me the freaks. That's why uh, we're reading this book. Yes, and that's also why uh, uh, Always Sunny is goaded. Bored to death. Those are some, to death. Those are some uh, I mean, snotty like 20 freaks. Twenty years old, but oh yes. god, really? Yeah. Oh no. Uh, Bored to death rocks. Bring back, be- bring back snobs. Bring snobs, back snobs, snobs, snobs. Yeah. snobs. Oafish snobs. Yeah. We love, we love them. Snobs with bad manners. Yeah, snobs with bad manners. Uh, That's, like this, that could be me. Somebody recommend us some some good oafish snob shows. Oafish snob. Uh, you know what? Sitcom actually does have some oafish snobs on it. Uh, the thing that we've been watching, uh, reboot. Reboot has some, yeah, but uh, some, through the lens of acting. That's the yes. other thing. Now every every TV show is about a TV show. Yeah, 
uh, which is fine. All Every right. movie's about a movie. Should we? Um, I spilled so much bun cake on the couch. How did that happen? <laughs> oh no! This, oh, couch, no. this couch has got to go. We are we are uh, abusing this couch. Is privileges we've lived on it for like ten years. Oh wow! How uh, long have we, been I, going? we we need to spin our spin our wheels for twenty five more seconds so we can get to a cool six, 60 minutes. Sixty. Oh no! What will we talk about for the next twenty five seconds? Twenty five seconds. I don't know. What are we going to talk about for the rest of the day? Oh, um, here's a quick question: If you had Thanksgiving dinner and right after you said grace, uh, a microphone fell from your uh, cabinet of microphones and hit your long disused glass wine decanter, empty, uh, and it broke into uh, like a couple of neat pieces. Uh, what would you? What do you think happened? Sound off in the comments. That might have happened to us. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. I'm wondering if we had a, a supernatural message of our own that we need to deal with, possibly a wraith who tried to make themselves known. Uh, are we leading ourselves astray? Are we on the right path? Are we serving the beam? Do we need to come in? Do we need to get the message out? I don't know. Did I hit it? Uh, you overshot it by almost 30 seconds. Classic podcast problems. Bye. <laughs>